making waves, inspiring change, opening doors to an equal future. Here on the Trapes and Globe on Wheels Disability Advocacy Podcast, host Ming Canaday journeys with an array of guests through the multifaceted world of disability advocacy. Guests will share their insights and will discuss some of today's most crucial questions and topics as well as provide perspectives into the current disability rights movement and lifestyles of people around the world. Let's make waves together in the disability movement. Enjoy the episode. Julie Fernandez, welcome to the Trapes and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Thank you very much for having me. It's very exciting to be doing a podcast across the pond. For those of you who are not familiar with Julie's impressive background, Julie Fernandez is a passionate actress, disability rights campaigner, and consultant. She has appeared in many award-winning television programs, including The Office, El Dorado, Hobie City, and most recently, Casualty, as well as presenting a host of national TV shows including Wish You Were Here, Heaven and Earth, and The Politics Show. She has also written, produced, and hosted several of her own documentaries for BBC Radio 4, which she received an award for. Julie also founded the Disability Foundation Charity in 1998 and was a foster parent for five years. She is a confident public speaker and has spoken for numerous well-known venues, including The Mobility Show. Julie did do you mind sharing with us what your disability is? I know you were born with osteogenesis imperfecta and use a wheelchair to get around. So can you share with us briefly about what that diagnosis is and, and how it's affected your life personally? Sure. So osteogenesis imperfecta is um, otherwise known as brittle bone disease. So my bones are extremely fragile, can break really easily. So I have had about 100 fractures and about 60 to 70 surgeries. So yeah, it's been it's been tough, but it, it's it's been okay. So I was born 10 weeks early, and I had jaundice. So they put me in an incubator. And at a week old, like they do with all babies, they did the hip hip flex test try saying that quickly they did that and they fractured both my femurs realized that that was not a good thing and then run a full skeletal x-ray and realized I had multiple other fractures and then diagnosed me with osteogenesis imperfecta they did tell my parents we're talking about 1974 and they said you know Julie will not live past two years old you'll have to carry her on a pillow for the rest of her life and if you'd like to leave her here in hospital you're very welcome Thankfully, my parents were like, on your bike. They came to the hospital, picked me up, took me home. I'm nearly 47, so I've not done bad. Yeah, I would say. I'm sure you and your parents have experienced some shocking things over the years. Yeah, plenty. I know you founded the Disability Foundation in 1998. Tell us about that foundation, the work that you're doing today with it. So I I stepped away a good 10, 15 years ago to kind of get on with other bits and bobs. Having had 60 or 70 surgeries and about 100 fractures, I found using alternative therapies quite helpful, having massage, having reflexology, 
various other what they term alternative therapies to help me with my recovery rate. My friend Janet and I set up a charity called the Disability Foundation that offers a wide range of alternative therapies to disabled people and their families at a reduced rate because they can be quite expensive. And if you're struggling to work because of your disability, the organisation was set up to offer a range of therapies at a reduced rate. But also what was really important to me was that there were disabled people that work there so that there were disabled people at all levels. If you're a charity, the trustees, the, the, the top people who don't get paid, we had to have a certain amount of disabled people there. And then on the employees, there had to be a certain amount there. I'm an absolute firm believer. There's nothing about us without us. So if this is an organisation for physically disabled people, it needs to be led by physically disabled people. And that was really important to me. And that still happening I believe yeah very well said when non-disabled people come and tell me how it is and how it should be and and run all the things and the charitable organizations that are there to help people with physical disabilities and it's usually always run by non-disabled people and I'm like hang on a minute I think we need to up our game and start looking at employing more disabled people which we did and it was an organization or it is an organization that offers complementary therapies at a reduced rate to help disabled people and their families so that they could afford it. So because I had like 60 to 70 operations and 100 fractures, you know, I used to have regular reflexology in order to assist to get all the medications eventually out the system more easily. And massages I found really helpful and all these alternative therapies. So that's what the organisation still does. It offers those things to people so that they can afford it. With your experience as a disability rights campaigner and consultant, what are some key things that you've learned over the years that you found have been especially effective? When disabled people are in charge, it makes a massive, massive difference. And I don't mean that it has to be only disabled people, but it has to have a high percentage of disabled people. I don't know about in the US, but in the UK, we've had a saying for years, nothing about us without us. We need to take control of our lives. We need to be in charge of that. We need to direct the conversation because we have that lived experience. And that is the most important thing. You know, what we don't want is people coming in and telling us how we should be and how it is and what we should do when they've not got that experience themselves. I mean, they may be empathic up to a certain point and understanding, but actually living with it and understanding the nuances of disability, I think it's really important that disabled people are in charge. Mm -hmm, Yeah, you really see the holes or see the missing pieces if it's led by able-bodied people or mainly able-bodied people because you do start to, things just don't sound right or feel right and physical, infrastructural-wise, it just doesn't work. Yeah, the language is different, the attitude is different and I'm not saying it's all bad because there's some really great non-disabled people out there that work within the field of disability and quality and rights and I am all about us working together as long as disabled people get that opportunity as well. Exactly. What was the best part about working with Buckingham Palace to promote inclusiveness? This was specifically to the staff that ran the shops within Buckingham Palace. So it was all about 
how to talk to disabled customers, how to adapt the shop to make it more accessible. You know, but here in the UK, we are some years behind with the what was called the Disability Discriminations Act. I mean, the ADA was passed probably a good 10 years before the DDA, the Disability Discriminations Act was passed. Hmm. And I remember, oh, it was after we shot The Office with Ricky Gervais, and I did this thing with a, a bunch of British journalists. We went round London to various tourist destinations to look at the access and how it worked. And then we decamped and flew over to San Francisco for four or five days to look at how the adaptions had been done out there. It was quite different. And I met an amazing guy called, I think his name was Richard Skerritt. He was a or is a wheelchair user, electric wheelchair user who works for the San Francisco Council to promote businesses in making themselves accessible. And we went round with him for a few days and it was a massive eye opener for me. For example, at that point, there was some issues with the Sable community not being happy that the lifts on buses were all on the back of the bus. And their attitude, and rightly so, was why should we get on the back of the bus like second class citizens? And my argument at that time as a UK person was, hey, you can get on the bus in England, in the UK. They haven't even got lifts. But that's how powerful the ADA was being 10 years in advance, that People were fighting not just to have a lift on the bus, but were fighting so that the lift could be at the front so that they could get on in the same place as everyone else. And I thought that was incredible. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's always interesting to hear different pers- perspectives. I think sometimes the problem that we have now, these basic necessities are not even met. We need to push the envelope further and keep progressing and not be satisfied with what is already there. Not for the sake of entitlement but for progression for progress they're not doing us any favors this is not about and this is what i talk about quite a lot in the uk you're not doing me a favor and being all nice about putting a lift on you're doing it one because equality and rights but two, and this is something that I have found really frustrating. So for years, in terms of disability equality and rights and training, we talked about it in terms of because this is the right thing to do. And in England, or or rather in the UK, with the Disability Discriminations Act, part what was part M, that's access to goods and services and business, what really killed it was the words reasonably adjust. So a business could reasonably adjust and do the barest of minimum and say they've reasonably adjusted and that'll do and it was so hard to push that envelope now there's a slightly well there's a bigger argument that seems to be that the non-disabled community are taking a little bit more seriously and that is the purple pound don't know if that's what you guys do you guys talk about it the purple pound is the collective spending power of disabled people and their families in england or the uk you've got the pink pound which is the spending power of the lgbtq community then you've got the gray pound which is the spending power of the retired community the purple Purple pound is the collective spending power of disabled people and their families. So in the UK, that's worth £249 billion per annum. Worldwide, it's going up, but it's about $1.6, $1.8 trillion a year. That is a 
huge amount of money that businesses are not tapping into and this is one of the things that we talk about a lot now here in the UK when we talk to businesses about why they should invest in making their business accessible you know can you as a business especially now we're going through this pandemic where so many businesses are struggling can you afford to not tap into the 249 billion pounds because you can't come to terms with your emotional feeling about disabled customers because when I talk to business they go yeah but disabled people don't come well of course they don't come you haven't got a ramp to the front door you know you can't get in your website isn't particularly accessible to people with say visual disabilities or learning disabilities so what we're trying to do is educate them and say okay do you invest in your business yes would you invest in a bigger office or employ more staff or better computer equipment yes excellent so you need to look at your investment, the money that you spend in disability equality and rights in making your business accessible in a way that you would by buying a new computer system, putting the ramps in, making the adaptions to their website so that we can come in and spend our money. And in the vast majority of cases, when disabled people go out shopping, for example, they go out with somebody. It's not often that I see disabled people on their own it's not that it doesn't happen but it's not as much as when when you go out with family and friends so if you make yourself accessible that means not just my wallet will walk through the door but the people's wallets I come with so it is um, worth you investing in your business by making it accessible Exactly. Those are some great points there, Julie. Let's go back to the beginning. Why did you decide to become an actress? My life has been really, really strange. I grew up in the 70s. My father was a Jewish East End gangster. My mother my mother was an Austrian Christ faith believer. My childhood was, was quite something. There was a lot going on there, including all the fractures, because most of my fractures and surgeries happened when I was a child. So there were some years when I was having six, seven, eight surgeries a year, for example. And my education was quite seriously affected by that, as it would be, because I'm in and out of Great Ormond Street Hospital all the time. My mother fought for two years to get me into uh, this amazing boarding school in the UK called Lord Mayor Trelaw's School and College. It's called Trelaw's now. It's the biggest boarding school in the UK for disabled students. And she fought to get me in and I got in and I was there from the age of 12 to 18. And that was the game changer for me. Trelaws, I mean, I am all about equality and rights. So I get the whole argument about disabled kids going to a non-disabled school. But in some circumstances, like for my needs, that would have been too dangerous with the brittle bones. One knock and I could have fractured. I'm up for equality and going to non-disabled schools, but I also understand the value and the strength in specialist schools. And this place honestly is amazing. Anyway, so I went there when I was 12. Trelaws was adamant that we did lots of school plays, that we got into drama and music and all of those things, which I did. My class was the first group of disabled students in the UK who did a drama GCSE. It's a precursor, so it's GCSE's A-levels university degree. But our class was the first group of disabled kids that the testers had to test for drama. So we did that and I'd done all the school plays and I thoroughly enjoyed it. 
I was doing my A-levels. I'm not very bright academically. And that all stems from having missed so much school because of all the surgeries. So I was doing my A-levels, wasn't doing particularly well with them. I mean, academically, and I then you go through the process. So you go, okay, I want to do a degree in and I looked at business studies, I speak German as my second language. And I looked at that. And then I looked at hotel business. So I so I got okay, I'm going to do business studies. Uh, so this is in the early 90s. So you then apply to a bunch of universities to see if you can go there to do your degree. All of them came back to me and said, No, you can't come here because the buildings aren't accessible where the classes are you want to be in. So I ended up having to come up with five different university subjects objects, which in itself is tricky, because you know, it's hard to figure out the one and then you have to keep changing it. Um, And it got to the point I was in clearing, which basically means um, they can send you anywhere, which also doesn't help because you need to prepare when you're a disabled student, the housing, the the buildings that are in. And I was really stuck because I I was doing my A-levels, couldn't find a university that was accessible. And out of the blue, uh, Trelaws, the, the boarding school, got a phone call from casting agents at the BBC saying we're looking for a young disabled girl in a wheelchair to play the role of Nessa for a soap opera that we're going to start making that's filmed in Spain so it's about expats all living in Spain have you got anyone and they went actually we do and my name was put forward and I went for the audition and got the job so a week before my 18th birthday flew out to Spain and lived out there for a year filming but for the the first three months I would fly back take an A-level exam fly back and do some filming and then fly back and take another exam so it the whole drama thing it found me rather than me actually going out to look for it wow it found you but then you you actually enjoyed it so much that you kept doing it right yeah loved it absolutely loved it you've done so many different roles what was one role that spoke most to you that you felt was most meaningful Mm, that's an interesting question probably something like the vagina monologues we did a short stint in the theater where we did the vagina monologues that was all disabled female artists that was probably the most powerful thing but it was only a one night it was a really short thing otherwise that and the documentaries that I make uh, for Radio 4 all of my documentaries have all had the subject of disability on it so that's it's all been about disability in different ways and that's been for me the most powerful because it helps to affect change yeah the vagina monologues I gotta say that's a provocative name so tell tell us a little bit more about that the vagina monologues is is basically women writers who write about their experience about their sexuality and what it's like to be a woman and then we kind of got involved as a group of disabled women because there's also that you know we're women of course but when you then add the whole disability side of things into it it completely changes the story again so that was quite interesting that is very interesting I think our listeners would be very interested with the next question about you being you know an actress with a disability what role disability played in terms of things that you experience in the performing arts world um, that you feel other able-bodied actresses actors do not have to experience 
do you know what? How long have you got? It's incredible. I mean, things have got better for disabled artists. I can't say that they haven't. You do see more disabled artists in shows now, but it's still so lacking. I mean, it really is still so lacking. I find it really difficult. For example, in the summer last year, I did something on Radio 4. We talked about this. And this is, again, something I've worked, uh, I talked to BAFTA about and various different uh, organizations what tends to happen a lot is that non-disabled people can often take the role of the disabled character with and what we call crip up right and I find that really frustrating and I understand if it's a low budget and they can't afford CGI I understand but for example if that character starts as being not disabled and then becomes disabled, I understand you need a non-disabled actor to play the part. But when the character is disabled all the way through, whatever it is that you're filming, whether it's a TV series, a theatre or movie, you employ disabled actors. That's it. End of story. In the same way, and this is the argument I have often with, with the media industry as a whole. So we went on the radio last year with some serious actors and I'm like, OK, so would you black up a white person, a white actor or actress, would you black them up to play the role of someone who has a darker skin? And of course, and rightly so, the reaction is, well, no, of course not. That's outrageous. It's disgusting. It's wrong. It shouldn't be done. Correct? That's the right answer. Why do you think it's okay then to get a non-disabled person to play the role of a disabled character? And invariably, the answer always that comes back to me is, yes, but an actor has a right to act and try out various different roles. And I'm like, no, sorry, that doesn't wash for me. You can't have one rule for one minority group and another rule for another minority group. It's just not fair. Until the time comes when we are all equal. Once we're all equal, knock yourselves out. But until that time comes, you really need to employ disabled actors for the disabled roles. And often, I don't actually think it will change too much until disabled people become the casting agent, the writers, the producers, the directors when those people when those positions are filled in the production side of things when they're filled by disabled people that's when things will change I mean at the moment yes there's more disabled people on television but I've noticed that a lot of those roles are like the secondary role and they're always the supporting role and their disability is the one that helps the main character come to terms with their own issues instead of it being you know the mother or the secretary or the policewoman whoever happens to have a disability and it isn't always relevant to even talk about the disability that happens so rarely and that's what needs to change yeah those are really good points i think especially writers we need to have people with disabilities who are writing the script, that being the soul and the heart of the story. And that's where it all originates, right? It does. And the problem with when you have non-disabled people being the writers, and often they don't have any personal experience around disability. Again, this is just my personal opinion, but disability as a minority is the thing that most non-disabled people fear the most because the thought of them, you know, they... It, it makes them think about their own lives and their own abilities. So the thought of ever becoming disabled, like becoming paralyzed or becoming blind or 
having hearing loss, if you speak to most non-disabled people about it, they'd say that would be the worst thing in the world. So we are consciously and subconsciously everything that they don't want to become. And it's really hard to have that conversation with them. And as writers, they tend to often write about us in a uh, kind of way. For example, if you look in a lot of films over the years, the baddie, the hated character, could often have various different physical disabilities or has mental health disabilities or the disabled character is always so grave. They climbed a mountain, aren't they? Wonderful. They play a bit of tennis. All of that kind of needs to change and it needs to modernise. And disabled people just need to be the everyday character. Totally. So I know you've appeared in numerous, you know, award-winning TV shows. How do you think your presence on the screen has changed people's views about disability? Have you seen tangible changes? Again, it has got better. I mean, the character... Uh, of Nessa in El Dorado, where I went to live in Spain. I mean, the programme only lasted a year, had all sorts of complications, but it was the first character of a disabled person played by a disabled person on mainstream British television, because it was three times a week. That in itself was quite groundbreaking. And it has got better, but it's still quite tough. I just wish there were more disabled actors out there on the mainstream because there's so many disabled people that come to me and say, it was great seeing you on that TV show because I saw myself in you. Uh, you know, as a disabled person, we see so few of us on mainstream television, unless it's like a medical programme and they want to talk about the whole medical side of things. I mean, here in the UK, we've got the whole social model versus medical model attitude. Are you guys the same yeah, yeah there are the different um, models that people learn and I think in some fields certain models are more prominent or more obvious you know from that point of view from the point of view of disabled people coming up to me and saying you know it was so good to see you on the screen because there's just not enough of us out there that I think is probably the thing that I have enjoyed the most in in being one of the few disabled artists from the UK out there got better but nowhere near as what it should be, not in 2021. That's what I'm talking about, being satisfied, right? The progress is all too slow. And even though there have been some changes, there's not nearly enough. From a TV point of view, for example, there is an American show, it's the, the modern version of MacGyver. One of the main actresses who is the boss of everybody is a disabled lady. She's of short stature. Um, she's from what in, in England, um, the terminology, is little people um so she's from the little people community she was also in boston legal she's done really well for herself and that's what i'm talking about the fact that her disability is never mentioned in the script i mean it's just irrelevant and yet she is the boss of everybody and she is hard i mean you do not want to get on the wrong side of this character and that's great and that's what it should be and that's what i wish for us as a community that the media industry would understand you know so if you look at the media industry it's all about viewing figures the more viewers you get the better chance you get of a recommission how many disabled people in the u.s 61 million which is around 26 percent of our u.s population 
61 million people. If you work in the media industry, do yourself a favor and include disability in your script in the right way. If you want the viewing figures to increase, that's the way you do it. Because we're we're about the one in four, one in five. So it's around a quarter. That's a lot of viewers that you could tap into if you worked in the media industry, if you included more disability in the right way, you know, and that's something I talk about quite a lot in terms of politics because unfortunately over the last 10 years I would say disability equality and rights has gone backwards in the UK for all sorts of reasons and I keep saying to the disability community hang on a minute there's about 13 plus million disabled people in the UK there's enough of us out there we are a powerhouse we could be the ones that vote in a party and vote out a party the difficulty is so many people rely on the benefits system here in the UK that of course you're not going to bite the hand that feeds. You need to live somewhere, you need care, you need support, you need food, you need help getting dressed, you need help taking your tablets, all those things. So you know why would you rock the boat when you get so little help, you desperately need that help. You don't want to be a hindrance. But as far as I'm concerned, bring it on. I think we have enough power between us that we could vote a party in and vote a party out. We did a documentary, you know, what it's like to be in a marriage or in a relationship when one person is disabled. And then we looked at the differences, those that become disabled, acquire a disability and how different that is. I guess the most powerful thing I've done, and this was a TV documentary many years ago, and this is something that really touches my heart. So osteogenesis imperfecta, brittle bone disease, it's all about, you know, you can fracture just so easily. And there are many, many, many parents of children with osteogenesis imperfecta who have been wrongfully accused of child abuse. Um, when their child has this undiagnosed disease and disability. And because we are seen as a rare disease disability for so long, the medical profession didn't really look into it that much within their training. So many parents had their children taken away from them Um which was absolutely awful. I mean, like beyond awful. Imagine being a loving parent and having your child taken away because of a disease that no one's diagnosed. And we've even had parents here where that's happened. The child is in foster care. The child, whilst in foster care, gets diagnosed with osteogenesis imperfecta, fractures in foster care, but that's just normal brittle bones fracturing, but still isn't allowed to go home to their parent. What's that about? So that was a big thing for me because it happened to my mum. She was at one point, like most parents of children with OI, are accused of child abuse. And that's really important to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's devastating. It not only happened back then when your mom was parenting you, but it's still happening still today. Yeah, still going on. Maybe a little bit less, but it's still going on. That's so sad with today's medical advancement, you know. And the other thing that I've been trying desperately in the UK to get the press to talk about seriously, and they're doing, they've done a few little dribs and drabs of stuff in the news, but again, don't take seriously enough. And this is massive is that DNRs do not resuscitate as far as we are aware the disabled community and this has been put in the news only for a day
day and it's like yeah all right move on but do not resuscitate so being put on disabled people's forms in when they go and have a stay in hospital without their consent and without their knowledge and without their permission well it's the same thing consent and permission so basically what's happening is people with physical disabilities who are having stays in hospitals are not aware that dnrs do not resuscitate to being put on their notes without their permission or knowledge and that is a completely different ball game and i've been screaming and shouting and talking and cajoling and being polite about it and not being polite about it and i cannot get you know it's almost like the media industry are going yeah all right move on and i'm like no hang on a minute do you not understand what this means do not resuscitate to being put on our forms without our consent and knowledge that is so not right are we living in like nazi germany or something because that should not be and i cannot get the news and i cannot get documentary makers to take that seriously why is that that is very disturbing too yeah. to know that in today's in our time right now that that kind of thing that those kinds of decisions those kinds of unit eugenic like decisions are being made yep scary isn't it it is very much i've had people in positions of power say to me oh it can't be you can't that can't happen and i'm like it's happening look here's the evidence no it can't be it's almost like what happens to disabled people is too much for the non-disabled people to even realize is happening it's too emotionally difficult for them to deal with of course until it happens to them and then they'll shout loud enough and that's what i'm finding really hard that the non-disabled community often don't want to listen to it because it's so difficult to listen to and i'm like mm, you really please let's do something about this we need to let people know this is happening you know but i guess it's expensive to keep disabled people alive the medication the equipment the care the adaptations you know better to, than the other scary yeah. it's mm -hmm. really really scary in 2021. I wanted to ask, how do you think the pandemic over the past year or so is affecting people with disabilities? Terribly. So in the news here in the UK a couple of weeks ago, the statistics that the press put out is six out of 10 deaths of, of, of COVID have been people with disabilities and pre-existing diseases and disabilities and illnesses. So it is affecting our community in a massive, massive way. And I don't know if, if this happened in, in the States, but at the beginning of the first lockdown here in the UK, what was happening is people, especially elderly people, and with age becomes, uh, you, you know, often you, you have health issues and diseases and disabilities that occur just with age. So a lot of people, a lot of the elderly people that were in hospital with COVID were being extricated from the hospitals to get them out of the hospitals and they were put in elderly care homes but they weren't quarantined and the system wasn't put into place to make sure that they were quarantined etc all these people that were in hospital with covid were taken out of hospital and put in care homes and covid ran riot in the care homes and this meant all of these people or many of these people that were elderly were getting covid and passing and that should never have happened and it doesn't take an educated genius 
or anyone from you know any of these university to realize that you don't take people with covid out of hospital and then put them in an environment where people don't have the best strength that's what i don't understand mm-hmm. so yeah it's, it's hitting the disabled community particularly hard how do you think they could have handled it better um i think it's obvious for that particular situation you just mentioned and how can how can they do better moving forward starting today Oh, there's so many things. I mean, like before we even talk about the whole COVID scenario, the whole system of the healthcare needs to be improved here in the UK. And I mean, it's even worse in America, because at least here we have a national health system, you know, and there's a wheelchair services where you can get a wheelchair if you need it. And there are ways that you can get care support paid for the by the local council, etc. Working in those systems or being within those systems, you know, trying to get a wheelchair out of wheelchair services, trying to get care is so difficult because it costs money disability you know we know in the UK that um, disabled people people with physical disabilities have have an extra 600 to 650 pounds a month that they have to spend so not only have they got to pay the rent or the mortgage and the heat light electric food etc so on top of what everyone else has to we also have to pay an extra 6 650 uh, a month for all of the other services that we may need and unfortunately in England there's a you know, we've had a conservative government. I mean, I'm apolitical. I think they're all as bad as each other. I don't think politics in the in the way that it's been done and has been done for some years is working anymore. I think there needs to be a real shape up in the way that we do that. And unfortunately, we've had a conservative government for 10 years that have, has taken away and taken away and taken away and reduced the money to the to the healthcare sector, to the social care sector. And disabled people are on their knees and they need the support and they're just not getting what they really need. They might get a support worker go in for for 15 minutes in the morning, an hour in the afternoon. But what if it takes, you know, like 15 minutes, what? So does that mean you've got to choose between getting dressed, going to the toilet and having breakfast and taking your tablets? For me, I can't do that in 15 minutes because everything has to be gentle and slow because of the brittle bones. But, you know, it's all these financial cuts to disability welfare and rights has put in disabled people in some really difficult positions. Yeah, I don't know how to respond to that. I think the UK is lucky that they have such an effective communicator. Julie, you're such a compelling communicator. And I can see how that you're very engaging to watch on the screen. And uh, I think people with disabilities over there are lucky to have you to advocate for them and to be able to communicate all these atrocities, try to get that message across to the broader population. Thank you. It's not working so well at the moment, but we get there. It takes more than one, right? Strength in numbers. Oh, yeah. And that's that's what I keep saying to the disabled community. We are the strength. We are the value that we have value. You know, disabled people, they, for example, disabled people make fantastic employees. Often we are outside the box thinkers, blue sky thinkers, whatever the, the latest terminology is. You know, because if you think about um, as a wheelchair user, just the simple thing of cooking a meal and carrying something hot from the oven to the table and a cup of coffee from here to there and you know everything is a strategic maneuver everything has to be thought through thoroughly you have to think outside the box about how am I going to get there now if there's not accessible how do I get around that so disabled people I think make great employees you know and that's why I want the non-disabled community to kind of understand that actually we are powerful too we you know unfortunately 
a lot of non-disabled people who are employers think, oh, I don't want to employ a disabled people. They've got to take a lot of time off sick and they're going to be at the doctors and they won't be able to get in. And what about the ramp access? And what about this and that and the other? But actually, I have found in my experience when I've worked in a whole range of different places where there's disabled and non-disabled, often it's the non-disabled person that takes more time off sick than the disabled person. And that's because the disabled person has a, a system in place. They they live with it. You just have to get on with it. You know, like pain, pfft, you just have to get through your day. So, you know, I think disabled people should revolt. <laughs> Yeah, it's time for a revolution, isn't it? Since you did touch on on working in the strength of people with disabilities as employees, how is remote working going for people with disabilities overall? And feel free to share your own experience with that as well. Do you know what? It's been really interesting. This whole pandemic has really shine, shone a light on things like that in the fact that actually we can do a lot of business on Zoom, for example, and all the other ways that you can go online and do that. And that really works for a lot of disabled people. Not all, of course, but, you know, for a lot of disabled people, it does work. And what's been really interesting is there's, we've, there's been various disabled stories that have come out in the disability press here in the UK over the last year. So, for example, young lady, wheelchair user, at university, the buildings that uh, some of the classes or the, uh, the, the that she has to go to are not accessible. And she's pleaded with the university to make it accessible. And they're like, no, it costs too much money. Sorry, you'll just have to work something else out. And that's really tricky, right? Soon as the pandemic hit, university classes, Zoom, they went on Zoom like that right? So why is it, or, or rather, isn't it interesting that now that it's affecting the non-disabled community, they can think outside the box? Now, why couldn't they have done Zoom for this university student so that she could work from home and still be engaged in that class in the inaccessible building? Another example, we know that mental health is a real factor because of the pandemic. Lots of people were really massively struggling with the whole lockdown process and procedure, you know, and now, I mean, in the UK, they're talking so much about the, in the news about the mental health of people and being in lockdown and how difficult it is and how we need to support each other. And I'm like, you know, that's brilliant. However, for physically disabled people, for or rather for many physically disabled people, lockdown is an everyday occurrence. And you guys haven't talked about our mental health, you know, and the fact that for years we've been shut in our homes and found it difficult to get out there. You haven't discussed the whole how do we support our mental health until it happens to the non-disabled community. And that and that you know I've had this conversation with various different people and they're like oh you sound angry and I'm like well I am angry because why is it we're only now talking about it because it affects the non-disabled community when it's affected us for many 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 years and going back to that girl or the young lady who was at university that was struggling to get in the class but now that it affected non-disabled students all of a sudden oh look we can do zoom 
So, it, it, yeah, it's been a bit of a bitter pill to swallow, I think, for the disabled community because it's shown it can be done, but it'll only get done when it affects the non-disabled community. Cool. Mm-hmm. Don't, I sound, don't I sound bitter? Oh, don't mean to. It is interesting how when it's affecting a larger part of the population, when it's really affecting the bottom line, affecting their profits. Yeah. It's suddenly we have all these solutions. Look, we can look into A, B, C, and D. Yep. But if it's just a few people, they're willing to overlook that. Yeah, but you know what? How many million did you say? 46 million? 61 million. 61 million. That's not a few people. That's a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of people to be ignoring. You know, we don't know. You know, like, there is a physically disabled person out there that has the intelligence that could be the person that could invent the drug that stops cancer. But if they can't get into university in the first place, how will we ever grow as a society? And that's what needs to change. Stephen Hawking the guy was one of the most intelligent men on the planet. He was also extremely physically disabled. If they could work it out for him, they can work it out for others. And that just goes to show you, you can never tell. You should value every life regardless of talent and skill set just because of the human life. But also at the same time, you can never tell who can contribute and who won't be able to contribute. You just can't tell. So do the right thing and value every life and do everything to support that. Yeah. And so I I want to end on the lighter note because we do need to wrap up. What What is a hobby or a fun activity that you've been able to pick up during the pandemic? I have loved getting into my crafting. So I love crochet. I love hand embroidery. I love all things like I've been doing a bit of adult colouring in, painting, a bit of 5D diamond um, painting. I'm also a big gamer. I love gaming. So I'm a big World of Warcraft. It's an MMO. So I've been playing lots of WoW. I've been reading I love reading so actually the slowing down has given me the opportunity to take a breath and a moment and to have a think about what I want to do next getting a bit bored now but yeah we're getting there Uh, Julie Fernandez thank you so much for participating on our podcast show pleasure thank you so much for having me it's been a real privilege and it was such a pleasure speaking to you thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode and came away with some information that you can now take with you to create your own change if you would like more information about trapes and global on wheels please visit trapes and global on wheels.com and that's trapes in t-r-a-i-p-s-i-n and for updates and other t-g-o-w related news Follow our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram, where our handle is at Trapes and Global on Wheels, and also Twitter and LinkedIn. You can find the links below in the description box or on our main channel page. And if you have an extra minute, please make sure to review our podcast wherever you like to get your podcast. This helps us tremendously as we try to understand how best to serve our listeners and further spread the word of our mission. We sincerely appreciate your support, and we'll catch you again next time.